0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features graphic discussions of murder, violence and elder abuse that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Since the term was coined in the 1970s, serial killers have become something of a cultural anomaly. Their existence has forced society to turn in on itself questioning how any person could become so evil. Notably, patterns of unhappy childhoods, untreated mental health conditions, and head trauma arise. Sometimes, however, the answer isn't so cut and dry, and one is left to ponder what transforms a well-intentioned human into a homicidal predator. The investigators on the case of nurse Orville Lynn Majors faced this very question. Rushing to make an arrest in the mid-90s, they frantically studied his victims to illuminate his motive and methods. But at the end of the investigation, Majors remained an elusive figure, revealing that not all criminals have pasts that explain their wickedness. Indeed, Orville Lynn Majors proves that darkness can fester even in the seemingly harmless. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to offering Alistair some medical insight into today's episode of Lynn Majors, a nurse with some bad and murderous habits.
0: You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream medical murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type medical murders in the search bar. This episode, we're discussing Orville Lynn Majors, an Indiana nurse who lethally injected his victims from May 1993 to March 1995. Police suspect that during his reign of terror at the ICU of his small town hospital, Majors was involved in over 100 deaths. Today, we'll explore Majors' known crimes, the hospital's chilling revelation that a once beloved nurse was a murderer, and the lengthy investigation that followed. All this
2: and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, New season out on Spotify soon.
0: In November 1994, two hospital employees walked down a sterile corridor in the intensive care unit of Vermilion County Hospital in Clinton, Indiana. The small medical center only had four beds in its ICU, which had all been in near constant service in recent months as the patient turnover rate peaked. The employers had their theories about why, but apparently the two on shift that day didn't discuss them. Instead, they noticed that a patient's door was open and decided to check on them. In the room, they found 33-year-old nurse Orville Lynn Majors standing at the end of an elderly woman's bed. Oddly, he wasn't performing any nursing duties. Instead, he just watched the patient unfazed by the entry of his colleagues. When they inquired what he was doing, Majors didn't miss a beat. I'm just sitting here, waiting for the woman to die, he said. The employees looked at him with confusion, unsure what to make of the ominous admission. But they wouldn't have to wait long to realize that Majors hadn't been joking. Right on cue, The old woman gasped for air. An hour later, Nurse Majors got what he'd waited for. Three decades before Orville Lynn Majors became a cold-hearted killer, he was a gentle Midwest boy who wouldn't hurt a fly. Or a fish at that rate. As a child, He had a strong connection with animals. As his sister Debbie later recalled, Majors once went into a pet store and saw a guppy jump out of the aquarium. Springing into action, Majors picked up the flopping creature, brought the fish's mouth to his and attempted to perform mouth-to-mouth resuscitation.
1: Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, is an emergency medical technique performed to help oxygenated blood circulate throughout someone's body when their heartbeat or breathing has stopped. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, a component of CPR, commonly known as the kiss of life, is usually used in combination with chest compressions in order to deliver air to the lungs. While humans and fish both need oxygen to live, we have lungs and they have gills, which are basically filtration organs packed with tiny blood vessels. As fish take in water and force it through their gills, the little blood vessels within absorb oxygen and flush out carbon dioxide. It's definitely a cute story that majors tried to save a fish with mouth-to-mouth CPR, but it's unfortunately a technique that doesn't work on non-mammals. If this guppy did in fact survive, hopefully it wasn't too traumatized and found a loving home.
0: Regardless of whether Majors actually rescued any animals in childhood, his gentle nature and light-heartedness were qualities others enjoyed. This secured his social standing. At Indiana's Linton Stockton High School, Majors was known as a likeable guy who was always laughing and making people feel better. While it's hard to say what exactly shaped this aspect of his personality, it's possible that spending time with his grandmother made him sensitive to the needs of others. He spent much of his downtime tending to her ails, So when she died when he was still a teenager, Majors was crushed. Ultimately, this inspired him to pursue nursing. So, in the mid-1980s, Majors headed to Nashville Memorial School of Practical Nursing in Tennessee. By the spring of 1989, at the age of 28, he had graduated and returned to Indiana. Majors quickly landed a job at Vermilion County Hospital, where he became a beloved member of the staff. His gentle persona worked in harmony with his sense of command and authority he'd often explain what he was doing to
1: patients while treating them, which put their minds at ease. Communication is an extremely important part of medical care. Patients in healthcare settings are in positions of vulnerability, and often their health issues and treatment plans aren't so straightforward. Talking through or explaining a diagnosis and treatment plan can alleviate a patient's anxiety and offer clarity and empowerment. Communication also helps establish feelings of trust and allows any potential misunderstandings about someone's condition to be discussed comfortably. This back and forth is additionally necessary when making strategic decisions if multiple therapeutic options are available for a patient's particular ailment. As a doctor, it's crucial to stay current with state-of-the-art medical knowledge and to always familiarize yourself with a patient's unique health matters before talking with them. This leads to an unambiguous understanding, which comes across when communicating with the patient who's in need of and seeking reassurance. There's a number of ways doctors can put patients at ease and cultivate trust, but Major's open interfacing and air of expertise definitely work to his advantage. As his
0: co-workers later recalled, Majors was even confused for a doctor on several occasions because he seemed so knowledgeable when on the job. This reputation followed him even after he left the facility to pursue another opportunity as a nurse in Tennessee, but the move wasn't permanent. In 1993, around two years after he'd accepted the position in Tennessee, the 31-year-old moved back to Clinton, Indiana. It wasn't hard for him to find his groove there once again. After all, he'd left behind a glowing reputation at Vermilion County Hospital. Securing a nursing job there a second time proved no challenge. On March 1, 1993, Majors took his first shift back at the facility. However, maintaining the social standing he had before proved difficult. Those who knew Majors prior to his move could tell his demeanour was different. For one, Majors was irritable and easily offended now. But his co-workers and friends soon noticed something even more alarming. Majors began speaking hatefully of others, namely, elderly people. They should be gassed, someone heard him say. He also started referring to the families of his patients as white trash and dirt behind their backs. The gentle Orville Lynn Majors, who had won a glowing reputation at Vermilion, had turned cold. It was as if something had flipped a switch in his mind. Eventually, one of his close friends discovered that Majors carried a fresh bag of syringes with him wherever he went. This needle supply reportedly helped Majors maintain a dangerous methamphetamine habit.
1: The irritability people noticed in Majors during 1993 and 1994 may actually have been a sign of his methamphetamine dependency. Irritability is common in meth addicts because it's not only a potential side effect of the drug, it's also a symptom linked to withdrawal. When someone abuses methamphetamine, excitatory neurotransmitters like norepinephrine and dopamine flood their brain, and this can cause powerful psychoactive effects that lead to things like euphoria, increased energy, anxiety, aggression, and irritability. This meth-induced psychosis can also spark auditory or visual hallucinations and create an exaggerated paranoia that may trigger erratic, violent behavior. Although Major's co-workers didn't initially know about his drug use, the strange behavioral issues they noticed were no doubt a sign of it.
0: Unfortunately, it doesn't seem that Orville Lynn Major's sought out addiction recovery. By May 1993, Major's strange remarks had only become more widely noticed among his colleagues as he continued calling patients derogatory names under his breath. The off-collar remarks would soon become a mere pit stop on Majors' descent into evil. Up next, Majors makes a habit of killing.
3: Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past, from the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla. Each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify.
0: Now, back to the story. Hey, thanks, Dr. In the summer of 1993, 32-year-old Orville Lynn Majors was just months into his second tenure as a nurse at Vermillion County Hospital in Clinton, Indiana. The glowing reputation he'd once secured dwindled as his irritability and scorn for others only increased. While some nurses noticed his agitation, however, All of them simply let Majors go on about his duties, trusting the authority he presented when dealing with patients. They frequently left him alone with patients in the few rooms of the facility's ICU, free to exact his will as he deemed fit. The number of fatalities at the hospital slowly rose throughout 1993. Whether Orville was actively harming these patients or neglecting them is unknown. But by January 1994, an unchecked Orville Lynn Majors was prepared to do his worst. That winter, 89-year-old Luella Hopkins had been admitted to room 220 at Vermilion County Hospital for pneumonia complications. Thanks to her physician, Luella's condition cleared up. She gained needed weight and became stronger, and by January 8, 1994, she had plans to return home. That day, Nurse Majors entered her room around 2.30 p.m., reportedly carrying a syringe. While he was once appreciated for informing patients what treatment he was about to administer, this time, he did nothing of the sort. Without explanation, Majors told Luella he was going to administer a shot Luella complied, trusting his expertise. After, Luella let out a big sigh. Majors left the room and headed to the nurse's station to report that there was a problem in room 220. When the nurse on duty arrived at Luella's room, she found the old woman gasping for air. A code blue was called and an emergency cardiac team swarmed around Luella. But it was too late. She had suffered a cardiac arrest with
1: asystole. The more common term for asystole is a cardiac flatline, referring to the straight line on an electrocardiogram that shows when someone's heart has stopped beating. To be more specific, asystole is a lack of electrical and mechanical activity in the heart's muscle, or ventricle, and it can be caused by a deadly heart attack or arrhythmia, which we've learned is an abnormal heart rhythm. When a patient's heart is declared asystolic, their chances of survival are very low, and this depends on how long their brain's been deprived of oxygen. It usually only takes about four minutes for death to occur in this scenario, but sometimes lives can be saved with defibrillation using handheld paddles, along with stimulating medications like epinephrine. These defibrillation devices deliver electrical shocks to the heart that essentially reset the sinus node, which is a collection of cells in the heart's atrium, the upper chamber, that electrically stimulate and dictate a normal cardiac rhythm. Think of it as a naturally built-in pacemaker. The desperation of the situation combined with the patient's physical response to resuscitation can be jarring, but this is a routine occurrence in ICU work. In my opinion, it's likely that Luella was pronounced dead shortly after her cardiac function flatlined. Luella's death was something of a
0: mystery to the team that had provided her care. She'd seemed strong and alert the day before, and upon examination, her heart tissue appeared relatively healthy. There were no indicators to account for her sudden death. Unfortunately, since Luella was 89, The medical team suspected that her passing was a surprising tragedy, likely related to age. In the months that followed, Code Blues became increasingly frequent at Vermilion County Hospital. While they'd risen throughout 1993, in 1994, their accelerating occurrence became hard for the medical staff not to question. One ICU nurse questioned her own ability, wondering if she was failing to adhere to some necessary practice. Naturally, her self-reflection was fruitless. She couldn't find some accidental reason why so many were dying because the deaths weren't mishaps. They were murders. They always seemed to follow the same pattern. First, a patient would exhibit signs of respiratory failure followed by an erratic heartbeat and cardiac arrest.
1: Patients experiencing respiratory failure will often simultaneously display signs of an erratic heartbeat. The fact that respiratory failure was often an initial event might have revealed clues about the nature of Vermilion's emergency. However, it's not abnormal for this to happen in people experiencing dangerous heart complications. The reason for this is because of a compensatory reaction where the heart beats harder and faster, attempting to make up for the lack of oxygen delivered to the body, especially the brain. The lack of incoming oxygen also creates problems in the heart muscle's electrical system, which we know from our earlier discussions is potentially fatal. This is the reason that ICU patients with pulmonary conditions like pneumonia are on supplemental oxygen, and are at a greater risk for cardiac complications. Looking at the possible chemical culprits, it may have been that these patients were overdosed with some sort of stimulant, like epinephrine, which can cause hypoxia by narrowing blood vessels in the lung and provoking hyperventilation that collectively can result in respiratory failure from a lack of oxygen. They may have even been given methamphetamine or significant doses of benzodiazepines, which can both stop respiration. Patients could have likewise been exposed to potassium chloride Allister, which could cause abnormal or halted breathing, making the heart's electrical system dangerously vulnerable. Aside from everything, however, the frequency and nature of these deaths in this small ICU should have served as a clue to something else. Patients were being killed.
0: As winter turned to spring, the deaths did not desist. Nurses remained perplexed. Several night shift workers observed that Majors seemed to be on the schedule whenever someone died. While they made jokes, no one thought to examine the coincidence more closely. So Majors proceeded down his destructive path. On April 2, 1994, 74-year-old Cecil Smith entered the hospital. Like Luella Hopkins, he suffered from pneumonia. The hospital opted to move him to the ICU for observation to ensure he got stronger before they released him. A day later, Cecil told his son Rodney that he felt he was burning on the inside. Shortly thereafter, around 1 p.m. on April 3rd, Cecil's blood pressure spiked it seemed he'd manifested hypertension with tachycardia the condition was seemingly inexplicable but
1: Cecil's words to his son may illuminate what happened Cecil's complaint about the burning sensation he felt does suggest he was experiencing more than pneumonia at the time he died Someone with pneumonia, like Cecil, is inherently more likely to suffer hypertension and tachycardia because the infection inflames the air sacs in the lungs and often fills them with fluid, thwarting the lungs' ability to absorb oxygen, compromising the body's ability to get the oxygen it needs. In response to the lungs' inefficiency caused by the pneumonia, the heart beats harder and faster to compensate for this reduced level of oxygen. Whatever Cecil was given in the ICU, surely his pulmonary problems made him more vulnerable to their effects. The mystery drug, or drugs, severely spiked his blood pressure and pulse rate to a degree that would have been very discomforting. Normally, when blood pressure and pulse rate increase, the vascular system must prioritize where the circulation is needed most, leaving the rest of the system's oxygen supply compromised. The body's blood supply under these conditions diverts blood flow to vital organs like the heart, brain, and lungs, and away from the limbs, skin, and intestinal tract, which includes the esophagus, stomach, small intestines, and colon. If hypertension and tachycardia become exaggerated enough, these non-vital tissues can become dangerously deprived of blood flow, which leads to intense pain, known as ischemia, and potential tissue death. Given his symptoms, it's most likely that Cecil was heavily dosed with some kind of stimulating agent, like an amphetamine or epinephrine. He really could have been given anything that created hyperexcitability in his heart's muscle, and the severity of the burning he felt definitely suggests something suspicious.
0: As Cecil turned for the worse, a code blue team tried to rescue him, but their efforts were futile. A little over two hours after his blood pressure peaked, Cecil Smith was pronounced dead. Cecil's passing surprised the medical staff at Vermilion County Hospital. They observed the death as an inexplicable tragedy that no one could have predicted. Still, nothing was done to investigate the strange occurrence. Without missing a beat, Majors leapt to his next victim, 80-year-old Dorothea Hickson. The woman appeared to be experiencing a buildup of fluid in her lungs. She was admitted to the ER for observation and hooked up to an IV. Her doctor, who had treated her for this same condition before, considered her to be stable at the time. So when she entered the ICU for further monitoring on April 23, 1994, her two daughters didn't perceive it as more than a routine occurrence. Just minutes into his shift that day, Majors walked into Dorothea's room. The woman's family members calmed. They'd come to know Majors. He'd shown their mother a great deal of compassion during prior visits, and this time seemed to be no exception. In reality, however, Majors had likely strengthened his bond with the patient and her loved ones for the deepened satisfaction of watching them grieve once she passed. That day... With Dorothea's children at the foot of her bed, Majors injected her IV. He didn't bother explaining what he was doing. Instead, he kissed Dorothea's forehead and brushed her hair back. It's alright, pumpkin, he said. Dorothea's eyes rolled to the back of her head. Within 60 seconds, she flatlined. Somehow, Dorothea's family members convinced themselves that Majors had been trying to help. They treasured his compassion and empathy and saw him as a nurse who truly cared for their mother. Elsewhere in the hospital, nurses puzzled over Dorothea's sudden passing. Just like Luella and Cecil, Dorothea's death was deemed inconsistent with her clinical course. Still no one looked into the death further. Majors celebrated his 33rd birthday that week, and it seemed that getting older only made him deadlier. When assessments of fatalities in the ICU were made at the end of 1994, the head nurses couldn't believe their eyes. This number was far greater than even the high statistic of 31 deaths the previous year. In 1994, 101 patients died. Other staff at the facility certainly had their reservations about majors by this point, but no one had made a concerted effort to investigate him. That was until nursing supervisor Dawn Steerich finally confronted the hospital's high fatality rate in March 1995. Thinking this may have been the result of miscommunication of nurses between shifts, Steerick pulled employee time cards. What she found revealed something far darker. Of the 147 patient deaths between May 1993 and March 1995, nurse majors had been working during 130 of them. With this revelation, Steereck had no choice but to begin the process of calling in the authorities. She contacted the hospital's administrator, who notified its attorney. The lawyers then got in touch with the Indiana State Police Department. They assigned Detective Frank Turchi to the case. In March 1995, members of medical management met with him to review the ominous findings. The consistencies present in Styric's data sets were enough to warrant an external investigation, but the police would need time before they had enough information to issue subpoenas. In the meantime, Vermilion County Hospital suspended Majors. If findings confirmed what Styric's assessment had revealed, he was in for far worse than that. Still, Majors' victims had all been buried. Any hope for building a case was reliant on files that very well could have been altered. The road ahead wouldn't be easy. Up next, investigators rushed to find Orville Major's M.O. Now, back to the story. In March 1995, Vermilion County Hospital made a chilling discovery about one of their staff members. 33-year-old nurse Orville Lynn Majors seemed to be involved in the majority of hospital deaths that had occurred since his renewed employment in 1993. One look at Steerick's internal reports provided Detective Frank Turchi all he needed to understand the sheer magnitude of the case. If Styrick was right, Majors had been involved in over 100 medical murders. However, nothing could be proven until Detective Turchi got his hands on hospital files, which the hospital was unable to release without a court-ordered subpoena. So, Turchi got to work examining what may have catalyzed Majors' killing spree. He hired a psychologist and inquired about what behaviors a serial killer in a hospital setting would exhibit. Unsurprisingly, the personality described was deeply controlling and egotistical, which reflected the traits Major's co-workers reported. Not only did Major's frequently act above patients and their family members, but he also upheld that air of authority that was once appreciated. By playing up his knowledge, he kept others from questioning his actions. As police interviewed Majors' colleagues, they realized that Nurse Majors even acted as a doctor on multiple occasions. This was certainly a red flag that could help them hit Majors with a criminal charge, but before acting on it, Turchi decided it was time to question Majors himself. When approached, however, Majors offered no answers. In fact, he'd already hired an attorney. This rang suspicious to Detective Turchi. Turchi relayed the news to Vermilion County Hospital in the hopes that Majors' actions to protect himself would convince them to surrender files. Once again, the facility
1: withheld them. While it may seem like the facility was trying to protect majors, in actuality, they were abiding by the law and refusing to supply patient files. Patients are protected by the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, which is a 1996 statute dictating that the privacy and protection of personal health information be guaranteed by federal law. Doctors and hospitals are only allowed to break privacy rules outlined by HIPAA mandated by criminal investigations, malpractice concerns, and substantiated threats to patient safety. Ultimately, the detectives on Major's case would be unable to obtain the information they needed just by asking for it. They'd have to come with something considerably damning. So, in the spring of
0: 1995, Frank Turchi headed to the court and began subpoenaing patients' files. Rumors spread around town that a wide-reaching investigation was transpiring at the local hospital. However, the Indiana State Police refused to provide a name to the public. The last thing they needed was a media field day to skew their investigation. It seemed Major's colleagues felt somewhat differently about the lack of reporting on the case. In the summer of 1995, someone wrote an anonymous letter to a news station. The specifics provided in it suggested that it was likely written by someone who had worked alongside Majors. And the damning letter eventually led to the release of Orville Lynn Majors' name. Once word was out, the small town of Clinton, Indiana erupted in chaos the entire community was divided over whether Majors was guilty or not. Things certainly didn't look good for the 34-year-old nurse when the state's nursing board responded to the uproar by suspending Majors' license for five years. Their reasoning included the fact that Majors had administered emergency drugs beyond his authority and worked in an ICU without a doctor present. This was true, but Majors seemed to feel wronged. To clear his name, Majors and his attorney accepted several television interviews, including one on Phil Donahue's daytime talk show. It's likely that Majors' legal representation recommended he try to sway the public by playing the victim. With every answer, Majors attempted to paint the narrative that he was an innocent man whose medical license had been suspended unjustly. According to Majors, he was being used as a scapegoat for the failings of Vermilion County Hospital. He claimed that other medical professionals had been around when patients died. But Majors' appeal to the masses had the opposite of his intended effect. After his interviews aired, a multitude of people called the Indiana State Police Department to report their own fishy experiences with the nurse. Others angrily wondered if perhaps their dead relative was secretly murdered by Majors. Circumstantial evidence compounded, but prosecutors couldn't take the case to court until they had something concrete. So. Detective Turchi called in medical experts to scan the documents for consistencies between patient deaths and strange irregularities that might suggest foul play. One such expert was Dr. Eric Pristowski, a respected electrophysiologist. He pulled the EKG readings that detailed the final moments of those who had died suspiciously in major's care.
1: As an electrophysiologist, Pristowski was the ideal candidate to assess the EKG findings and deliver opinions about the probable causes of death. Electrophysiologists are cardiologists who specialize in the heart's electrical system, and this is exactly what EKGs provide in their wave patterns. Prostowski would have been able to notice distinct and subtle changes in these linear peaks and valleys on an EKG, and could have determined if there were blood vessel events causing heart attacks or electrical problems resulting in arrhythmias. He would have even been able to identify any type of arrhythmia that may have occurred, and could have distinguished between the four kinds of abnormal rhythms. These include atrial fibrillation, where the atrial contraction doesn't sync with that of the ventricles, atrial flutter, where the atria beat too rapidly, ventricular fibrillation, where the ventricles quiver abnormally, and ventricular tachycardia, where the ventricles beat too quickly. Electrophysiologists are also versed in the pharmacological aspect of treating electrical heart conditions, and are trained in performing procedures like cardiac ablation, which involves highly selective scarring of the heart's tissue to block these abnormal electrical activities.
0: After careful analysis, Dr. Eric Prostowski made a shocking discovery. Many of the patient's EKG readings showed a distinct widening pattern. Prostowski reasoned that this pattern was associated with one of three things. One, a massive heart attack. Two, a clot to the lung. Or three, an injection of potassium chloride. This revelation pushed the investigation forward in a major way. According to Prostowski, the victims majors killed didn't seem to have existing blood clots or other underlying conditions that would have led to the type of severe cardiac event he was looking for. If authorities were able to prove that, then they'd be able to state with certainty that those patients with abnormal EKG readings were killed by an injection of potassium chloride. So, in September 1995, the Indiana State Police began exhuming 15 bodies to test them. Just as Prostowski suspected, the autopsies of the victims' bodies didn't reveal findings that would suggest a natural death. However, traces of potassium were found in multiple suspected victims, allowing Turchi to formally conclude that Majors had killed them with potassium chloride. But the investigation wasn't over just yet. They still had to connect Majors to the murder weapon, potassium chloride. This would require a closer look at Majors' home life and belongings. Frank Turchi began by bringing Orville Majors' roommate in for questioning. During a polygraph test, the man struggled to answer the question, do you have any suspicion that Majors could be killing patients at the hospital? This hesitation was enough for police to secure a search warrant of Majors' home. What they found when they arrived at the property Confirmed their existing suspicions In the garage, empty vials of potassium chloride lay on the floor in a box These should have never left the hospital There were also a number of syringes, needles and epinephrine containers The latter of which suggests that majors used more than just potassium chloride to kill Detective Frank Turchi needed nothing more to build his case With the findings from Majors' home, authorities were finally able to arrest Orville Lynn Majors on December 29, 1997. 33 months of investigation and $1.6 million had finally paid off. The captured criminal smiled as he was forced into a cop car his air of authority and self-importance still potent as ever. Locked behind bars in the months that led to his trial in the fall of 1999, Majors maintained his innocence and attempted to work on a defense that would exonerate him. When the court proceedings finally came, however, the testimony from 79 witnesses, 23 of which were doctors, told the jury all they needed to know. Sickened relatives recounted the grief of losing their loved ones and Major's former colleagues testified about the awful things he'd often said about them. But the most damning evidence were the electric cardiograms brought in by Dr. Prostowski. It simply didn't make sense that so many patients had died with such similarly unusual heart conditions. After five weeks of trial proceedings, the jury finally deliberated. They convened for three and a half days before finally arriving at a verdict. Guilty. On October 18, 1999, 38-year-old Orville Lynn Majors was convicted on six counts of murder and subsequently sentenced to 360 years in jail. Though he was suspected to have killed over 100 victims, the sentencing accounted for those crimes that were provable. In the years that followed, the surviving kin of about 80 patients who died under Majors' care sought damages from Vermilion County Hospital. The facility paid an $80,000 fine for negligence and code violation and was rebranded under the name West Central Community Hospital.
1: Even though the victims were elderly, the circumstances of their deaths didn't completely line up with their specific conditions. It was really helpful to have an electrophysiologist's input on the case, and without medical experts like these, it can be much harder to convict a murderer. Moving forward, it's of the utmost importance that strange and suspicious behavior gets noted and reported in healthcare settings the minute it's observed. We need to learn from people like Orville Lynn Majors and the countless medical murderers that came before him that sweeping nefarious behavior under the rug has dire consequences. There's no such thing as an appropriate level of shiftiness in hospital facilities. The stakes are too high. It seems like Orville's manipulative bedside manner and air of superiority fooled those around him long enough to let him get away with countless atrocities. Although it's sad that Majors got away with so many deaths before he was caught, it's nice to know that prosecutors were able to rely on science and expertise to stop such an evil force. Indeed, Majors'
0: use of potassium chloride was no mystery. But why and when Majors truly became a murderer remains somewhat murky. While his reported methamphetamine habit did alter his personality, it seems that the darker issues that led to his addiction in the first place will remain unknown. One thing we can say is that justice was final for Orville Lynn Majors. Though he tried to appeal his case to the Indiana Supreme Court in 2002, the verdict stood. If karma does exist, it came to Majors quite specifically. On September 24, 2017, at age 56, Majors died, similar to the patients he killed, of heart failure, a chilling echo of the two-year murder spree he'd spent years denying. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alistair.
0: For more information on Orville Lynn Majors, among the many sources we used, we found the Lethal Injections episode of License to Kill on Oxygen extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. Fact checking by Bennett Logan and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
3: Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past, and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.